0: All right, now, when I take these headphones off, I can hear a ringing sound extremely clearly. It's very high-pitched. When I put them on, I don't hear it. So it's not recording. So in terms of the recording, no, it's, (laughs) this is a very, it's not the refrigerator. I know I can hear the refrigerator, too, but it's not, it's not that. This is like um, somebody playing the, the uppermost reaches of a glass harmonica. I mean, I, this is—I uh, I have to say—this is so much like something that would happen in this <coughs> book that it's uh, a little bit eerie, to tell the truth. Because <laughs> this is—it's loud. What I'm hearing is very loud to me, and it only happened in this. Well, did I hear it on the way up? Maybe I heard it a bit on the way up. Maybe. Wasn't it? Maybe I'm trying to think if I heard it on the way upstairs or not. You think you're going to pick it up? No, actually. You tried and thought can't. I actually can't. I put it on my headphones, it goes away. I take take them off and it's crystal clear. I mean, this is so much like your book. It's very, very strange. And I'm not trying to, I'm not kidding. No, I know. I know. <laughs> I feel great about it. Maybe
1: it's
0: this. <laughs> what, what, do you think it's a staircase? it stair go button? away? No. No? It's not, I can't, when I put it on the headphones, it's gone. It's not recorded. recording. So and, and, the, it's beyond. Hear? It might be beyond the range. Can you
1: hear it, Whitley? Like, well, the trouble is I have this tinnitus in my ear. Oh, so well, I've had
0: tinnitus too, and this sounds like super loud, booming, but high-pitched tinnitus. But uh, that's—it's not that because it's not. It sounds very different. Anymore. Like as I was telling Anne, it sounds like uh, somebody playing the upper reaches of a glass harmonica with a little wah pedal. God.
1: <laughs> I
0: mean, it's,
1: it's,
0: why don't I just come in and sit down? Yeah, I want to interview whoever's making this noise <laughs> I don't <laughs> want too. Do. I'd like to
1: too
0: well, uh, well I have to say this is a very auspicious start for, for things here And uh, unless I can't get my machine to work that would be upsetting okay and I see alright Okay, 10
1: minutes. I'll put my phone on your desk. Yeah, 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 if somebody calls. yeah and I'll I turn need,
0: on library. Turn this guy off. Nighty night. Well, actually, I'm recording all of the stuff we're saying now. I don't know how much of it I'll use, but it's just so strange to have that. It's so be able to hear that. that. Would be an interesting to it's an inter- to talk about the sound. I mean, <laughs> about, it, talk about it. but <laughs> it's, oh. a it's a very... Sound. No, I want to talk about your book. Yeah. But I just think it's so... It's so much in uh, harmony, as it were, with your book. Yeah.
1: All right. Let me just we take we probably away. aren't really alone. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, okay. well, we'll talk about that once we get into the, in the interview here. Um, okay.
1: I know what we seek... Back when I was going out in the woods, among the very few words that my visitors said to me in plain English were, have joy. But how do you find it? You find it by dropping the load of life, and with it arrogance and self-will, something that is far easier said than done from my own experience." We are here to live past our egos, but if we know our future, our lives will not shock us enough to be effective, or so it would seem. I suspect that this is the great difference between us and aliens who might be here, and there are likely some mixed into this bubbling stew of being, I would think. I think that they have been here a long time. They are probably the fairy folk of old and the silkies and the sylphs and the distant gods who once roared their civilizing instructions but have since fallen silent. The gulf between us arises from the fact that their souls and body forms are not divided like ours. Their consciousness extends across the entire spectrum of being with the result that bodies have an entirely different meaning for them than they do for us. We feel that our bodies are us. My name is Whitley Streber because that is what I was given at birth. But I was somebody before I had that name. I am still that person. All of us underneath our names are somebody more authentic. Personality is a device that is apparently designed to guide us into the sorts of life experiences that we need to have in order to further whatever mysterious quest we are on. The stakes are very high indeed. They are as high as stakes can get. Unless we can find ourselves before Earth ceases to be able to support human bodies in numbers, we are going to find our journey very rudely interrupted.
0: Whitley Strieber is the author of The Hunger, The Wolfen, The Night Church, Communion, Transformation, Breakthrough, The Greys, The Secret School, and 2012, The War for Souls. His new book is Solving the Communion Enigma. Thank you for joining me, Whitley. Thank you very much for having me. Now, I absolutely loved the title of the very first of the foreword, which was, let me look it up here, Reading as Mutation. Jeff Kripal's forward, yes. I, I just thought that's such an interesting perception of reading and because I think to a degree reading uh, gets close to the core of everything that uh, this book hovers
1: around. Well, it does. Uh, the book is about... Uh, articulating and clarifying what is a fundamentally transformative change that is emerging among us and being imposed upon us both at the same time. And that title and Jeff's interest in the book uh, come from, the title of of his essay and his interest in the book come from his awareness that the book is so closely allied with that process that he feels is such an important process in the experience of being and in reading. Now, uh, one of the things that you
0: talk about and and that he says, and I think this is something that you're very interested in, is how... Even over the past 50, 60 years, we've been engaged in myth-making. We've been in the middle of myth-making, kind of in—it's in real time. We're watching myths form, and I think that's a really interesting perception of these phenomena, which, as, as you and Hibo say, the important part of the word—of the, of the acronym is unidentified.
1: Yes. Myth is generated out of the unknown— And therefore, the more change there is in the social milieu, the more myth will emerge. And this is why this is an era of extraordinary mythologizing, because there is so much around us changing, and we every day come across more and more unknowns. Just a few weeks ago, uh, some neutrinos apparently moved faster than light, not a week later, Another impossible experiment was announced when diamonds were found to be quantumly entangled, even though they are at the classical size. That was supposed to be impossible. And a couple of months prior to that, a laboratory, I believe, at the University of Santa Barbara, managed to cause a small metal object to remain perfectly still, and vibrate, at the same time, it is out of extraordinary discoveries like these that myth emerges. It's the uh,
0: human ability to appra- embrace opposing notions in our, in our mind, things that that that. Su- nullify one another, essentially with logic, that our ability to embrace those opposing notions, I think that gets uh, to the core of even these kind of uh, physics experiments.
1: Well, yeah, uh, that's right. And we find ourselves grappling daily at every level with questions that we can neither bear nor answer. This is what we live with in our world. This is what our world is and it has more this way now than it ever has been in human life as knowledge has exploded and information has exploded so have the questions and it is the questions that challenge derange and elevate the mind <laughs>
0: The beginning of your part talks about, um, you know, the idea of mystery. You you kept having experiences after communion. And, oh, yeah. And, and, and they changed in nature somewhat. And one of the things I have to say, having read this book, I came here to your nice neighborhood in Santa Monica. I got here a bit early, and I took a walk around the block. And I have to say that... My experience doing that was much changed by virtue of your book, because it allows us to see all the opportunities for strangeness in what is otherwise a very ordinary world. I looked at that alley and I thought, "Oh my God!" <laughs> there was a little, there was a culvert with some boards kind of covered up, covering up a hole, and you know, a little bit of overgrown. Uh, Leaves blown on it, and it just all seems very suggestive. Once we've read this book,
1: nothing is ordinary. That's the illusion that we live in, <laughs> and once you've gotten past it, then the world comes to seem much more like what it actually is. Now, uh,
0: you're, one of the things that that interests me is this idea about UFOs as spaceships. This is always the classic idea that. You know, there's another planet, and essentially that we have what we are being visited by are slightly uglier Klingons right. or Vulcans that have gotten their spaceships and drove in here, just like we might drive to work. Um, longer distance, maybe some better technology involved, but that's the that's the idea. And one of the things that your book suggests is that that just the rejection of this idea of spaceships is is because they couldn't be real, because spaceships couldn't possibly come here over this distance.
1: It just seems uh, ludicrous. It's an innocent folklore, but uh, wound up in it is anecdotal testimony, which suggests the opposite, that, in fact, there are spaceships here. Both answers are true in the very same sense that the little object in the laboratory both vibrated and remained still at the same time. And I'm not speaking metaphorically now. Both answers are really, finally, and absolutely true. And if you're going to ask me how I can say that, I'm only going to answer you the way I am answering myself and everyone who listens to us has got to answer it the same way. You figure it out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, um you talk one you talk about uh, a man named uh we've seen a lot of different people who've seen UFOs and reported UFOs. Yes. You know, Edgar Mitchell
1: uh Yeah, Edgar Mitchell <laughs> wrote a a blurb for my book, in fact.
0: Absolutely. And, and he saw something in space that he couldn't identify. That's and, right. And But you, one uh, guy you, I, you on earth whom I've not heard of before is Dr. Paul Hill. So tell us a little bit about what qu- makes him so qualified and what happened to his report, which is fascinating.
1: Uh, well, it's an, a truly remarkable story and, a, and, a, and an instructive and rather frightening story. And I'll tell you this. Dr. Hill was one of the first NASA engineers, before it was even called NASA, when it was called the NACA, uh, it was, uh, he joined it. And he, a few years later, proceeded to have one of the all-time best witnessed UFO sightings in history. He saw a UFO that was also witnessed by two pilots in a in a flying in an airplane flying overhead the object was picked up on radar visually observed by him a highly skilled professional observer on the ground by two pilots professional observers in the air and its characteristics were it was actually more than one object was were clearly identified and of course the man was flabbergasted he had read about these things in the newspaper that were showing up over the Chesapeake Bay. This was in the early 50s. And he was fascinated by being an aeronautical engineer. He was, of course, just absolutely eager to get down there and see if he could see them. And this is, this happened that night. It became one of the only cases in Project Blue Book that was described as unresolved. However, it is absolutely seminal and it's not the only one that he had he had a number of other ufo sightings as well and he began to question what they were what why was he seeing these things and what were they to him they were spacecraft it in his book it never crosses his mind that something very much more uh challenging may have been underway and he analyzed their motion. He figured out why they had certain characteristics in their motion, how it was that they were not aerodynamic. And he went, went into it great, at a great length. The book was called Unconventional Flying Objects. And he was sort of the, uh, he described himself as the most hidden man in NASA, the unofficial UFO guy for NASA. When he originally brought his sightings to his supervisor, his supervisor said something that absolutely characterizes the tragic disconnect that this material seems to bring up in the human mind. His only response, when this highly skilled professional sits down and tells him in detail what he has seen, is to say, have you been drinking? That's it. And to me, that was a, his, a, a tragic moment historically because he could have said, oh my God, let's take a better look at this. Let's get some equipment out there. Let's get some people out there. Let's really see if we can nail this thing down. But instead of that, he simply said, have you been drinking? And just a few days ago, I read a an interview with the Astronomer Royal, Sir Martin Rees, where he laughingly dismisses anyone who sees a UFO or reports a UFO as a crank. He doesn't even know that Dr. Hill existed. And NASA didn't want us to, because after Dr. Hill wrote his book, it didn't get published. In the book, it says he says he's going to publish it on retirement because NASA has said he can't publish it while he's working. But then it didn't get published when he was retired either. He died, and his daughter found the book in the manuscript among his things. He had never even said anything about it to anyone. Someone said to that man, you don't publish this book, because if you publish this book, you'll lose your retirement, or something, something, some kind of threat. I don't know. That's what it came down to. The book was published uh, by a man whom I've interviewed on my radio program, Dreamland, uh, who ironically it was in the publishing houses in Hampton Roads, Virginia, where he had his original sighting. <laughs> I love the way these things <laughs> tie together. So it's, it's an extraordinary case, and it is, a, it is ignored because it has to be. If you're going to say it's all a joke, it's all nonsense, all the people are cranks, then you have to pretend, as Sir Martin Rees does, that Dr. Hill Simply does not exist
0: now, what this has to do <clears throat> what this kind of reflects, and you talk about this in a, a about the mirror shattered um, that these kind of incidents and uh, uh, the, and there's a whole variety of them that we'll discuss that something that violates our hard won perception of what is real and what is the material world something that violates that, violates a kind of basic taboo. And I think that's a really interesting perception of, of why, why these things generate such a strong reaction.
1: Yes. The taboo is fundamental to our being, but there are ways of relaxing, uh, uh, surrendering, if you will, that you can find discussed in the works of the great mystics, of Meister Eckhart, of the great Buddhist and Hindu teachers, the yogis. Uh, You can find it in St. John of the Cross, and uh, alluded to in the Cloud of Unknowing. A certain surrender of expectation that causes you to begin to see this as indeed exactly what Shakespeare said it was, a stage. And we are the players, and we all play the same role. We're playing the fool on this stage. And frankly, I'd rather take the exit and see what's going on back there where they have all those wires and curtains and things.
0: (laughs) One of the things I like about the way you write this book is the you weave in your own personal story? Yes, and, and I think that makes it. Uh, this is, in a sense, a, a, a biography of whitley Street or
1: autobiography.
0: Autobiography, yeah, yeah I it guess. is
1: autobiographical. yes. Yeah,
0: a lot of it, and I think it's that's a very interesting approach. Um, you s- suggest that um, traumatized children have a better chance of experience being able to see something that doesn't fit in with the rest of reality. So I'd like you to discuss the the, the effect of childhood trauma. The, the What is, to a degree, a, a positive effect
1: down the line? Well, yeah, it is a positive effect in some respects. Obviously, no one wants to experience childhood trauma. I certainly didn't, but in some way I did experience it. As I go on at some length in the book exactly what happened is unclear because when you're dealing with a, memories from the age of five and six and seven of things that weren't supposed to happen, uh, you just simply don't have an adequate grammar. Your your mind could not assemble those memories in, an, in a meaningful way, and I point that out too. Uh, it's not possible. So what I remember and what actually happened are... Could well be two completely different things. But one thing is clear. From the way I lived and live now, the trauma was there. Something happened that cracked the cosmic egg. Something shattered expectations upon which I was depending for my notion of of the real in those days as a child. Something came into my reality and broke it all apart. And that, again and again, when Dr. Ken Ring, in his book about this, uh, called, I believe, Searching Toward Omega, uh, he did a study, which Ann and I financed, uh, of a, a, a small sequential study of people who have had these experiences. And the one statistical consistency in this study was that they remembered childhood trauma of some kind. And I concluded from that, since I do too, and Anne, uh, that, that it, the shattered expectations enable you to see more clearly into a reality in which we all are deeply embedded, but which we are trained by the very nature of our experience to ignore.
0: Now, you received some rather different training as a child. Tell us about the secret school and Robertson Air Force Base. And uh, I love some of these parts, too, because some of this stuff is kind of funny. You know, you describe yourself as an unruly child, I I can imagine.
1: Unruly is a very polite word compared to what actually happened. (laughs) I, I was... Uh, a really bad little boy, and gosh, I enjoyed it. And I (laughs) enjoy remembering it, too. I somehow managed to uh, saw the porch off of our maid's room when I was about four, and when she finished washing up and went out to go up to her room tired at the end of the day, the whole thing just collapsed on her. And my mother and father have always, always, all of their lives wondered how I had done it, I do too. All I remember is the spanking. I don't remember the sawing at all. But in any case, that happened. Uh, but in those days, I was when I was five. I was in kindergarten at uh, Our Lady, uh, Incarnate Word College, on the campus of what is now Incarnate Word University in San Antonio. And it was a much smaller place, and there was a little building, a red brick building that was a kindergarten there, stuck onto the campus and i was there and i had a little friction what's called a friction toy a little car which you if you r- roll it back and forth quickly on the ground the wheels will get to spinning fast and it has a flywheel in it and i for whatever reason stuck this thing r- rolled it fast i was sitting at the feet of uh, the very sweet nun who was our teacher and 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 uh and nurse nursemaid I stuck it up under her habit between her legs and it sucked up her pudenda. (laughs) (laughs) She leaped up and rushed away screaming. Soon another nun appeared. And then the next thing I knew, I was no longer going to school there. I was instead shifted to a... Camp uh, called Jack Toller's River Ranch Day Camp, which, as my mother later put it, gave you a little more latitude. (laughs) And uh, so, it was from there that I began to have these experiences that I write about in the book that are very difficult to remember clearly that apparently involved some sort of classes at Randolph Air Force Base. Now, I wouldn't have even put this in the book. These classes were, were tr- frightening. They were not—you weren't being taught something. You were being altered in some way. Uh, you were Some kind of personality-splitting technique was in use or something. I really can't tell you what. All I can rem- tell you is I can remember confinement, darkness— very loud sounds, uh, getting sick all the time to the point where I finally my immune system collapsed I ended up in a military hospital being given glamoglobulin shots uh, instead of with my normal pediatrician and my parents were just beside themselves. Now, as I said, I wouldn't have even mentioned any of this on the theory that it could just be all some kind of nightmarish fantasy that is built up out of confusions about other rather innocent experiences in childhood. But another friend, a friend of mine, a dear friend, one of my oldest and dearest friends, when he read this, he said, you know, Whitley, I remember those people. They came to our house and they tried to get my parents to get me into that program and they would not do it because they thought there was something wrong with it when they talked about Skinner boxes.
0: That's pretty scary.
1: It's pretty scary. Now, you fast forward to the early 80s and suddenly in a park in Tallahassee, Florida, feral children are seen by local residents. They call the police. It turns out that these children are running around in this park being supervised in quotes by two gentlemen whose name end up names end up in the public record. The children have really no idea even of their own names. They're dirty and they they claim that they're being taken to a special school for smart children in mexico i remember going to a special school for smart children in monterey but why no like no one in my family ever made reference to it no one living at this time remembers anything about me going to such a place but i remember being taken there very well by my father so what is this disconnect what is going on here the children the in uh, in Tallahassee, the, this story grew quickly and was of great concern because it involved possibly a kidnapping of a large number of children, five or six little tiny children. Uh, they were being badly treated, et cetera, and so forth. So the Justice Department began to investigate, and suddenly the Central Intelligence Agency swooped in and said, it's a national security matter, we'll take over, and- Uh, A congressman who was deeply concerned about it said, I believe, in U.S. News & World Report that it looked like what had just happened was that some sort of abusive activity had been swept under the rug by the United States government. So there's so much smoke there that somewhere there's fire. So however my paradigm was shifted and my, my expectations, however they were shattered in childhood, they were shattered, good, and proper. I can tell you that.
0: Well, there's a great scene in this book. There's lots of great scenes. I can see why you became a horror novelist, because there's lots of great scenes that could just come right out of a horror novel. And one, and there are very the horror novels
1: were a relief.
0: <laughs> I imagine. Uh, there's a scene where you're taking into a room and in indoctrinated into sta- the uh, the the love of Stalin. And this is, yeah, <laughs> that's really We were weird. given
1: bears and, and, and told how wonderful Stalin was and stuff. It was very odd. But, you know, in, in retrospect, it wasn't. This, this was in about 1947 and 48. And at that time, remember, a lot of people still were hero-worshipping Stalin and the Russians because everyone knew that they had played by far the largest role in the defeat of Hitler. And everyone also now knew how evil Hitler had actually been, even worse than we thought. Mm. And so, so there were plenty of people around in those days, just as the Cold War was beginning uh, who still loved Uncle Joe, as they used to call him, during World War II. And so I can see where that might have happened if such people had uh, gained access to some children. It's, but it's, So it's not, that's not so odd as some of the other things that I seem to recall. There's another scene, too, where you saw a picture of your father. Standing yes. next to, it. tell us, what, this is really weird. It's, it it's really up. weird. I wish I, now, <laughs> now folks, I mean, you're, you're going to get a, you're going to end up with a question here that you can't answer, but you're going to want to, and just so, so do I. So if you can't answer it, please write me an email. Um, the This is what happened. My father gave me a desk from his office, a nice desk, and he'd used it. It was too small for him, but it fit well in my room. And I was about 12, and I was becoming very bookish And so he gave me this, and two men brought the desk to the house and took it up the stairs and put it in the room, and it was jostled around plenty as it was being moved, of course. And so the first thing I did was open all the drawers to see if, you know, where I could put things. I assumed the desk was empty, but it wasn't empty. One of the drawers had a picture in it, an old Kodak, black and white picture, and I picked it up. And I looked at it. And to my astonishment, this is what I saw. There were two African men in fezes and soutanes, looking like they were sta- in North Africa somewhere, holding up a coffin. In the coffin, with his hands folded and his eyes closed, wearing a sh- actually a sh- what looked like a shroud, was my father. Now, you know, a 12-year-old boy is curious enough anyway. I was a really curious little boy, and I was absolutely amazed by this. I looked at it and looked at it trying to think, is it, where, did it, where was it taken? And it finally, I decided it, it looked, I mean, you could see fuzzy detail in the background. It, it, wasn't, it did look like North Africa. So I went downstairs, and I said to Dad, Hey, Daddy. I found this in your drawer, in the drawer of the desk. What's where? What's this picture about? He looked down at it, tore it up into little pieces, and that's the last I ever saw of it. He never made a sound about it. It was never referred to again at all. Uh,
0: I, I love all this. Kind hey, I like of them apples. Yeah. <laughs> You talk a bit about uh, Hubertus Strughold and Operation Paperclip, I, and yes. I, I love Operation Paperclip. It's it's such, it's so Dr. Strangelove.
1: Well, it is. Dr. Strangelove actually was in Operation Paperclip. <laughs> That's how they got him over here, plus the arm. But in any case, uh, yeah, a lot of Nazi scientists were, were brought to the United States, a lot taken to Russia, some to England, a few even to France, uh, where they... It was hoped that they would continue research that they had been doing in uh, in in Germany because a lot of the research in Germany was very very advanced, especially in in areas like jet and rocket engineering and rocket propulsion, which we know about. And well, Werner von Braun was a paperclip scientist and came here from uh, to continue our our space program uh, uh, after he was finished with the V-1 and V-2 bomb uh, rockets. So paperclip was a big deal. And Hubertus Strughold had been a specialist in high-altitude medicine and much wanted by the Air Force, of course, because we were beginning to fly really, really high. And we were beginning to want a lot of knowledge about how to keep our pilots alert and alive and safe in high altitude environments, so Strughold was a peach, and he was picked up, and uh, they started this institute at Randolph Air Force Base. Only later, he was honored by the Daughters of the Republic of Texas and given all kinds of awards because there was a strong there's a strong in South Texas connection between Germany and and Texas because South Texas a lot of it was settled by Germans as indeed. My family were Germans. I come from a German family that's uh, who settled in South Texas from, from Germany. And so there was a lot of good feeling there. Unfortunately, it was later discovered that some of the things he had done in Germany had been a little unseemly, to say the least, uh, putting people in hyperbaric chambers and simply simply uh, watching them as the pressure dropped more and more and more until they exploded or compressing them to the point where they their lungs collapsed. I mean, he was a monster. Uh, that wasn't known in those days. But it was in him. The ability to use human beings as test subjects. The psychopathology of his Nazi background was still in him. And he and the people working with him could certainly have harmed children in the interest of their studies. And maybe that's what happened to me and some of these other kids. I remember being there. In the interest
0: of national security. Always uh. in the interest of national
1: security. <laughs> you know, uh, a great American, uh, a socialist, uh, Not I'm not a socialist, but that doesn't mean everything he said and did was wrong. Norman Thomas, I once had a wonderful conversation with him when I was a boy, uh, and he'd come to San Antonio to speak. And I walked up after his speech and began to ask him some questions. We ended up sitting and talking together for hours. And he said to me, and I'll never forget it, he said, your generation is the generation in peril because where the secrets start... The Republic stops, and this country's got cancer. The cancer is called secrecy.
0: Oh, isn't that?
1: <laughs> and so true now. Yeah, no, it's uh, the the secret. Uh,
0: the secrets are obvious. Oh, all around us. Now, you. One of the things I think that this book does really well, there's lots of kind of weird and disquieting stuff in here. And I think one of the things you're getting at in this book, those kind of little cores of this experience of this book, is what Freud called unheimlich, uh, the uncanny. (laughs) the, The uncanny, that's right. I think that that's really at the core of this kind of paradoxical experience of reality that you have, I think, every day.
1: I live in the uncanny. That's where I live. I'm in the uncanny. And so is Anne. <laughs> we, when, 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 we, when we came together, it became came really uncanny. We had a very uncanny life uh, in, in, in our early married years. And But, you know, we were so innocent. Uh, we just took these strange things that kept happening around us absolutely for granted and laughed them all off until finally, um, the whatever it was and is that does these things, just dragged me out of the house in the middle of the night, raped the dickens out of me, scared me half to death, and threw me back uh, like 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 a minnow too big to swat, too little too little to catch. And uh, I've never been the same since.
0: And this is your these are the uh,
1: communion experiences. I'm referring. the last one was the mm-hmm. communion experience. I was referring to the earlier experiences, like when we first started. We're married first, and we're living together in our apartment in New mm-hmm. York. Some very strange things happen.
0: I love those scenes in this book. Those are so great. I mean, they're <laughs> I really it. weird and surreal. Well, they happen, and uh, they uh, are uh, weird uh, and surreal. I, I just can't I, tell you that anything but the truth. We'll talk a little bit about the horse store because I think that is such an interesting horse <laughs> <the> store. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, we lived on Fifty Fifth uh, between Eighth and Ninth in Manhattan in Clinton, and between 7th and 8th on the north side of 55th then there was a little old building with a what had been a storefront for perhaps a hat shop or something back in the 19th century a little shop it was never anything significant I think it's gone now I I think the building has been replaced but in any case we used to walk past there quite often going back and forth to our one of our favorite haunts which was Doubleday's Bookstore on Fifth Avenue and 56th Street and we would see every once in a while sitting there in the window with a kind of curtain behind her, a young woman, not necessarily the same young woman each time, but sitting there on a chair either looking very nervous and unhappy or sitting there looking out with that too frank look that says come hither without actually saying it. And we thought they were prostitutes. And they had a storefront, so we Ann and I would laughingly call it the Whore Store. And one night, we came along. And you understand, we had no UFO thoughts. We Nothing like that had ever even come up in our conversations in our life at that time. It was years before the community experience. And uh, there were... The curtain was flopping like crazy. The chair was on its side. There was no woman there, but there were these little blue men, midgets, rushing in and out from behind the curtain, and you could see a man in a suit trying to get out, and every time he would would come pull back the curtain, or his hands would come out, an arm would come and grab him and pull him back. We never, which scared us, and we never went down that street again. We, we, we deflected over to 56th Street or 54th Street from then on. We never passed that place again at night. There was something really frightening about it. It wasn't normal, and uh, we, uh, that was certainly chilling. Whatever it was was happening in there, but, but I can tell you another story about something similar that happened to a psychologist who was driving on the Grand Central Parkway in, the, in Queens on his way to the airport when he saw something very odd. He's coming in traffic, driving in traffic, and suddenly he sees an airplane coming toward him right down the middle of the parkway at an altitude of, he said, just a couple of hundred feet and getting lower. And he thought to himself, my God, it's going to crash into the traffic. It's landing on the parkway. They think this is a runway. And as it passed overhead, he saw that the engines looked like they were fake, like they were, you know, the whole plane looked fake. And he was absolutely flabbergasted. He couldn't imagine what in the world he had just seen. But then something else occurred he noticed on the roadside a big lighted sign with symbols flashing past on the sign up up, up on a little little hill a, a little berm on the roadside and he thought what is that and he pulled over and he saw there were other cars pulled over and people were getting out of their cars and walking in and and standing in a circle on the roadside and all of a sudden, this little man, dressed all in blue, walked up to him and looked up at him and said, you're not wanted, get out of here. And the man was, the psychologist was frightened by this. He said, this was not a clown or a little munchkin. He said, this was a monster. And he got in his car and drove away. Then he read, five years later, he read Communion and he wrote me. But you see the connection here. Someone (laughs) seems to be capable of taking people out of life for some unknown reason. The fake airplane was there to deflect the attention of motorists so they wouldn't notice what the psychiatrist did notice. The psychologist did notice. And this all happens. It's like I'm talking about things that have to do with life on a planet that is not planet Earth. But it is. It's that we live in an enclosure. Charles Fort, the great discoverer and and chronicler of anomalies, said in, I believe, his book, Low, this is a barnyard. And he was right. There's a whole lot going on all around us of which we know nothing or choose to know nothing.
0: You know, you use an analogy in here at one point where you say that, to a degree, we're like chimps trying to understand a truck. Right. And um, that made me think of one of my favorite uh, novels by Arkady and uh, Theodore Strugatsky called Roadside Picnic. And the premise in this novel is that For no reason, five zones appear around the world. It's like something was shooting at the world, and it hit five times. And in those zones, everything is incomprehensibly strange. It's clearly an alien visitation, but it's totally incomprehensible. And the analogy he used is that we were like ants at a roadside picnic. That book is called Roadside Picnic. Trying to understand the trash. And I think that that's a a pretty good analogy in a way of what's – what's going on here, that there's a lot of stuff that we can't possibly comprehend. Now, in this book, you also talk, uh, analogy is an important tool for you. So maybe just talk about using analogy as a writer. I mean, you're a writer out there trying to explain the impossible. That can't be easy, can it?
1: <laughs> well, it can't be. It isn't easy, and it's it's very fraught because you never can be sure that what you're saying is actually communicating what you're trying to communicate because you can't be certain in a situation like this there's no shorthand and you can't be certain that if you say certain words that they will have the same meaning to your reader that say for if you're writing a thriller a thriller author says certain words and he knows that the reader will pick up the code of those words because they're 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 they're, they're that's they're part of the accepted lexicon of the genre. This is a genre with no lexicon at all. So I just am never sure whether what I'm saying and what's being heard or read are the same thing at all. And it's it's like it's like trying to build metaphors out of quicksand.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the, the communion experiences. I, one of the things I think that's interesting is that you now... Um, In retrospect, you regret the cover of the book.
1: Yeah, I regret the cover of Communion. And I regret it because even though it's an accurate portrayal to an extent of that face, uh, it is too overwhelming. It's too suggestive, too mythologizing. It screams alien presence. And it what it should what I would have been much happier with is if it was something much more a- ambiguous because whatever is really happening, there's no consensus about it. I wouldn't even argue that it's necessarily real in any way, no matter what Paul Hill saw uh, I- I- in the same sense that you and I sitting here are real or that it has a, Life outside of the mind—that uh, I would, I would be able to give you a very strong debate that what we're talking about is something that's being generated by us, and uh, is emerging out of our increasing discoveries of the of, of the difficulties we are in in this universe in understanding it, and the sense of being alone that grows and grows with the years, the more and more we discover the vastness, the unimaginable hugeness, the recent discovery, for example, that there must be trillions of rocky Earth-like planets out there. And yet, the dead silence is terrifying. What? Why? With all of this potential... There isn't even a scrap of radio transmissions, nothing to suggest that we are not alone. And uh, yet, at the same time, when you come to this shadow territory between the mind and the physical world, suddenly then you think to yourself, well, maybe we are alone. Maybe we aren't alone. Maybe it's all true. Maybe the UFO cranks, as it were. Are, are, are all right. And, but what, my, what that cover did was it imposed that decision on you. It said, this is an alien contact, an alien encounter. I didn't want it to do that. I didn't want that. And yet, extraordinarily enough, the cover played a very important role in that millions of people, upon, immediately upon seeing that face, thought to themselves the same thing. My God, it wasn't a dream.
0: Well, when you talk about what's real and you and I sitting in this room, I can, with perfect clarity, hear a very high-pitched whine in this room and have since I entered it to the degree that I thought it might be caught on audio. Nobody else can, and it's not being caught on audio. So (laughs) perceptions of what's real are, you know, uh, I guess uh, personal.
1: Well, you know— you you come into the skillet, welcome. <laughs> All I can say is it's it's pretty hot in here and frying hard.
0: Now, when you talk about in this book, you talk about your personal life a lot, and. and Communion was a huge bestseller. Yes. And and you had had many bestsellers before that. The Hunger and The Wolf and... War Day. And War uh, Day. Uh, I, you know, adapted into movies, big movies that did really well. Right. You were fairly well-to-do, had a couple residences. Mm-hmm. Once you uh, spilled the beans in, in Communion but couldn't cough up an alien in, in a cage, uh, things began to go downhill for you, didn't they?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, well, you know, you have... You think... A person looking at a life like mine from the outside would say, oh, he must be immensely wealthy or very stupid. I'm not stupid, and I'm not rich either. So you figure it out. <laughs> I uh, What happened was this. Communion initially was received very kindly by the public. They were very interested in it. But then they expected an alien to land. I mean, they really did. Mm-hmm. Because people are people's imaginations and their recusination are not sophisticated, and they tend to be very passive and to wait for everything. And so uh, the result was, when that didn't happen, they turned away and just lost interest in me. And a few books later, I was desperately trying to keep my head above water because you you know you stop selling books and. Eventually, the publisher stopped publishing you, and by the early 90s, after the book Confirmation failed, came out and had a dismal sale, uh, I was unable to publish anything. And the result was I lost essentially everything. I lost our house. I lost our apartment in New York. I lost it all. And I ended up uh, with, in a car packed with luggage uh, with my wife, Heading back to San Antonio, from whence I had arisen uh, to a little condo that we owned that my mother had lived in before she died that we'd still were holding on to that was that and that was where we ended up
0: you know this is such an interesting uh, journey just in terms of uh, a life uh, a life journey because um, from these kind of heights of of, of fame to to you know ending up in in a in a a used apartment in san antonio and, and yet all along you kept having these these strange experiences seeing you know strange humans and that's what's interesting about this book is that into the mix of things that are that as you describe them look like animals people when they saw some of the things in that you talk about in communion, they took them yeah. to be raccoons
1: well when yeah when people we would invite groups of people up to the cabin during the height of it because the visitors turned out to be very sociable mm. and they would show up <laughs> in and if we had big groups there and uh uh it, i mean it wasn't it was not like sitting down over the dinner table i wish it had been but people would react to them when they first of all really really seeing one would just astonish people, because they would think, you know, they've had belief that it might be true, they've had what they believe to be close encounters, and then suddenly, face to face, in full consciousness, there is one of these little gray creatures. And it was a really a, a major life moment when it happened to people, as it had been for me. My wife was, who is plays a an extraordinarily important role in this whole process. Mm-hmm. I'm not so sure it would have any, any even happened without her. I've often thought that if I'd never met Anne, maybe I never would have met the visitors either. <laughs> so,
0: she seems to be a, like a point, a point of gravity to keep you she's in a, orbit she's, but not pull you away from the strange.
1: Right. She's ex- oh, so well put, so beautifully put. Thank you. She's catalytic and also a muse. She's brilliant and... Open-minded and uh, extraordinarily able in this area, in an area when you would think no one could have any real skills. But but one of her skills was she would pick people to bring to the cabin, and they were always just perfect people for the for this. They were lovely, sweet, sophisticated, nice people who had written us letters, just public letters and uh, who had had close encounter experiences that were genuine in the sense that they weren't lying, they weren't dissembling, and they weren't confused. They hadn't really made any of those confused decisions about what it is. And these people were magnets to the visitors. The visitors would show up because that's the kind of people they liked, and she understood this and it. And so we would have these really great, I mean, just absolutely historically marvelous experiences there that were all sort of ignored and laughed off, like ever, all of it is. But uh, these people, you know, we had one night when one lady was sleeping in one bedroom and this creature came in through the window. The windows were all screwed closed. I'd, I, I The screens were I had long since... I had, you know, I could lock that place up very tight, but they came right through the screens, routinely anyway, so it didn't matter much, and it woke her up, and she engaged with it for a couple of moments, and it asked her what it could do for her, and she said you could go down that hall, the hall outside, because the hall was covered by a low-light video camera running all night, and there was a film crew there, and the crew sleeping in the basement and the producer and his wife in the living room. So it left the room. It proceeded to wake up two other people in the next room. Now, you see how this is evolving. It's not a shared hallucination I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about people being waked up sequentially, Mm -hmm. one alone and then two with two witnesses. The two witnesses both saw the creature and interacted with it briefly, and then it disappeared. But it went back down the hall. Then the filmmaker woke up and saw standing beside his the couch, he was sleeping on a convertible couch with his wife, standing there looking down at him was a little man with a great huge head and he thought, holy God, this bullshit artist wasn't lying. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it then turned in to the head of, of horus the egyptian deity the head of the little man now do you see what's happening here we're we're flowing from something that seems like an experience in the physical in physical reality with a little alien man mm-hmm. into the world of myth and the energies of myth are being engaged here in a completely new way but what's fascinating to me There are certain people who would have understood that engagement, Carl Jung Mm -hmm. among them, much more clearly than UFO investigators today who are basically looking for nuts and bolts. In any case, or Jeff Kripal, who wrote the introduction to this, understands that interaction beautifully. Uh, The next thing that happened was the, the creature disappeared before the eyes of the filmmaker. He and his wife woke up and they started talking and then dawn came and my son and I came up from the woods. We had been sleeping out in the woods because there were so many people in the house. There was no room for us and um, um, Annie didn't want us both in the bedroom with her because she was afraid that we'd play practical jokes on in the night, which probably would have happened. So uh, we were coming up from the woods and we saw a little blue cowled figure come out the front door, go racing down to the end of the porch, racing down the deck before our eyes and then out across the backyard and darting off into the woods, darting around among the trees at breakneck speed and disappearing into the woods. And so we rushed into the house and the filmmaker and his wife were there on their feet. Uh, They had just been washed over. By a blast of heat so intense they thought the bed had burst into flames, just as this thing left the house. And what you're seeing there is a combination of a mythological figure and an identifiable technology, because in order to be invisible, you've got to do something to light, and One way to become invisible that we are actually working on now is to bend light with gravity, with a very heavy-duty magnetic field or gravity wave. But to do that, you need energy, a lot of energy. But if you are releasing the heat from that energy into the environment around you, people are going to notice. So you keep the heat trapped until you leave the area. Then you release the heat and you leave the area, and that's what they felt. In other words, there was technology, mythology, illusion, all of it mixed up into one thing in this, in this e- event. And then there was the camera.
0: What was seen?
1: Not a thing.
0: Well, that's that's in keeping with my recorder. As I hear this high pitched whine, I'm very much actually hoping, in this case, that it won't show up on the audio. <laughs> and, I don't know. A lot of people. Experience.
1: I've had two or three emails from people who said that they kept hearing a high pitched whine when they were reading the book. So who knows? I'm just beyond concern. <laughs> I mean, I hope it goes away for you. I, I, <laughs> I hope do it doesn't. I hope, I hope it doesn't just stay with you now.
0: You know, you talk about. Um, This kind of brings us to uh, you talk about when we think about all these things in Toto, um, what could be their plan, their program for us? And, and, (laughs) and, you know, what's their their game plan? And, And one thing that strikes me, you describe yourself as a practical joker. Yes. And there's a lot of the trickster in these critters. A lot. I mean, and when you describe this guy running around, and he's, you know, and and sometimes the trickster's funny, and t- sometimes the trickster is really scary, and sometimes yeah, yeah. both at once. And I'm wondering if maybe you've ever considered how they might consider you. They might. They're coming at us from this direction, outside of what we think. Maybe you're coming at them from outside of their direction, and so they see you as every bit as strange, as threatening, as scary, and as funny as you see them.
1: How interesting! Well, there's a possibility that that could be demonstrably true, and I'll tell you what it is. Many years ago, when uh, the abduction researcher Bud Hopkins was 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 uh, hypnotizing people, which I thought was rather iffy way of going about this whole business Mm -hmm. uh uh, i mean it's one thing to be hypnotized by a skilled professional and bud was an artist who was interested in this he had no professional training in hypnosis at all uh i had you you we used to gather at his house and a bunch of us who've had close encounter experiences and one of the young women was an actress and I laughingly said one afternoon, she was going there and she was going to get hypnotized by Bud. And she was all nervous. And I said, well, listen, why don't you play a practical joke on him? And uh, she said, what joke? What, I wouldn't play a joke on Bud. I said, well, how about this? Um, I've always wondered whether or not they smoked. And she said, smoked? Like aliens smoking? <laughs> And I said, "Well, and she kind of got into it, you know, and I said, Well why don't you go under if as you go under hypnosis, why don't you tell him that you remember seeing them smoke seeing them smoking and see what he says And she said, But I didn't see them smoking i I said that the interesting thing would be to see if he believes you, and so she was dubious about what was going on, but apparently couldn't resist doing it to see what would happen, which is what I hoped would occur. And suddenly, a few minutes later, there was a yell- some yelling in there, and he threw her out and came rushing out and threw me out and said, get out, and threw us both out. Uh, Anne might have been there, in which case Anne was thrown out too. Anyway, the girl had said this, and Bud thought these were robotic creatures. And so he said to her, did they inhale? And she said, yes. And he said, well, what happened to the smoke? And she said, well, that was the funny thing. And this was her her brilliance. And this is also why she got us all thrown out. She said, the smoke just drifted out through the skin of their heads. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. You're not under hypnosis at all. And this is something to do with Whitley and you're all getting out of here. (laughs) <laughs> so off we went. was right. Anyway, last summer in crop circle country in mid-July, and you can find this formation if you go on the crop circle connector uh, and look in the July crop formations, you will find among them the face of an alien with a pipe in its mouth and big puffs of smoke coming out of its head. Now, that, you would think, is a practical joke being played on me by friends who make crop formations, you know, by people. Mm -hmm. And I would say, of course it must be true. However, and this is the thing that makes it so much fun, it is the finest crop formation ever made by man, if it was indeed man-made, because we can tell very easily. It's easy to tell a man-made formation when you know what you're doing. There are two types of formations. One type is made in a way that is defies science. And all the stuff about boards on people's feet and all the laughter and all of the nonsense is just that. It's nonsense. I wouldn't say aliens are making them. I don't know how they're formed. But they're not formed in any way that we understand and can and can. Replicate.
0: This is where the crops are, where the where the the wheat is bent and burnt slightly. It,
1: it, it bent it's... and heated, but not burnt. Yeah, heated so that the so that the 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 uh, joints in the wheat will expand on one side and 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 and, and cause it to bend over. But done with such jewel like precision, it's incredible. This formation was made that way, mm-hmm. and I thought to myself, "Oh God, what." <laughs> What happens if I have a soul and they're waiting for me? And the first thing that happens to me after I leave this world forever is I become the victim of some kind of interstellar practical joke. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not unlikely, uh, to, to be honest. Well, you know what Meister Eckhart said, the great, uh, the great Christian philosopher mm-hmm. uh, of the 13th century, who was quite possibly burned at the stake, he said, God laughs and plays. And so when you see that sort of thing, maybe we're getting close to something worth getting close to.
0: Now, real quick, we spoke about this, uh, I think, last time, that would be three years ago. Uh, You still have your implant, right?
1: I still have it. It's in my ear. uh,
0: One of the things you you suggest, and and I had never considered this before, was that these implants are actually a lower form of
1: technology than what we're capable of. Oh, what? yes. That's the thing that's so strange about them. They're much lower. Uh, we, could, we can. I, listen, the, the, the military can put an implant in somebody, a, a, a tracking implant in a, in a pilot, that, that no foreign government, is, no one who doesn't know it's there and where it is, is ever going to be able to detect. Uh, Certainly, and identifying implants that can be that that a a reader can can read you know hold a reader over it and identify a body Uh, they can be microscopic they don't even need to be visible.
0: Now, what what when I read that, what struck me was that. Maybe they don't care. I mean, when we we tag sharks all the time.
1: Oh, they care, all right. <laughs> they care. <laughs> We yeah, we tag sharks and we certainly aren't going to be using that expensive kind of esoteric technology to tag sharks, sharks and chimpanzees. Sure. Sh- we're just going to tag them with whatever they can't pick off. In the case of the <laughs> shark, you could tag it with a with a with a bus because yeah. he's not going to be able to pick it off. <laughs> right. And a chimpanzee you have to be a little careful because he's got hands. Mm-hmm. And w- with us you have to be a little careful because we've got hands. But I don't think so. I think there's another reason for this. Mm-hmm. I think that the whole gamut of the thing, from the UFO sightings, so ambiguous and, 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 and so accessible to denial and to belief, mm-hmm. uh, the crop formations, so impossible to deny the strangeness of if you really look into it, but so impossible to believe if you don't. Mm -hmm. uh the cattle mutilations so creepy and so ominous and bizarre and yet so logical in a way because after all we mutilate cattle by the millions every day yeah Uh, uh the implants big hunks of metal inexplicably in some cases uh emanating fm signals that that aren't even in any important part of the FM band and don't propagate more than a few feet. Uh, The whole thing, alien abductions that have a physicality to them that's undeniable. I mean, I got raped. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also an ambiguity that suggests that they're not originally a physical experience and maybe not even even a real quote-unquote experience at all. All of this, this is a kind of assault from the surreal Mm -hmm. uh, and the ambiguous, forcing us, millions of us, all over the planet every day, to face questions that we cannot answer and cannot bear to ignore. And you know what? I love that phrase.
0: Yeah. That's a great phrase. It
1: is. A study was done showing that people who are exposed to the ambiguities of things like the surrealistic writings of Kafka end up with the logical parts of their brains enhanced. It builds logic. It literally makes you smarter. Now, there's all these crazy shows on the television of ancient aliens came and did this and that to us. And I think to myself, ancient aliens altered us genetically because, you these, these changes will become part of the genetic heritage of the people who are being changed. It's not ancient aliens. This is what evolution looks like when it's applied to a conscious species. Mm-hmm. This is what's happening. We're getting better. We're being made better in some way by, the, by nature, by the universe, by the human mind itself circling around and trying to find an answer to the mystery of its own being.
0: We, you talk about one thing I thought was really interesting was you talk about what we might do if we were to come on another planet, how we might appear to yeah. those residents. And, you know, we don't have to go to another planet. That's actually happening right now on this planet Absolutely. in Brazil. In Brazil. I just talked to a guy, Scott Wallace. He was a National Geographic reporter who went into this to talk to our... What's interesting is our attitude towards uncontacted tribes has evolved over the past 50 years in much the same way the sightings have evolved originally the idea was bring them into pick them up round them up bring them into society and they'll be good and well no it turns out they're marginalized and end up drunk and, and, and right and, yeah and then they said well we'll just mark off the territory and say hi to them and but that's still the disease would wipe them out now the idea is we want to stay out of touch with them, but kind of get to know them. And there's a tribe called the Arrow People, and this goes to our aggression towards anything that comes to us. That They call them the Arrow People because the only main contact you have with them is when they throw arrows at you. And But these people, who, we've managed to discern some of their beliefs, and this is what really interested me and has to do with your book, is they've seen jets and they've seen planes now these are everyday technologies to us the 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 jets the you know the jet airliners right. those they consider to be the departed souls of their ancestors our gods the planes they consider to be monsters like big birds or dragons or something they don't they have no they have no way to put together that they're different versions of the same thing that's a technology that's built by man they're they can't even wrap their brain around that And we've, like, swept through their villages and disturbed them. I mean, it must be almost exactly to them like the encounters you had Yes, And I think that, you know, that um, there's a lot to be learned (laughs) from those kind of experiences that we're imposing on others of our own kind as to what's happening here.
1: Well, you know, the Air Force has been shooting at them for years. Mm. Uh, back in 2009... Throwing arrows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Dr. Milton Torres uh, suddenly became quite famous because the ministry of, British Ministry of Defense was releasing a lot of UFO papers. Mm. Among them was a description of uh, an American air base in England in 1957 where the... Uh, a wing of fighters was ordered aloft to confront a UFO and fire on it, and the name of one of the pilots, Milton Torres, was mentioned in the in the document. So people, including me, went running to Milton Torres, who's now a doctor living in Florida, and he said, "Oh yes, absolutely. We fired on it. We we we. It was, the thing was the size of an aircraft carrier, and we were we were scrambled to confront it." And as soon as we, as soon as I cocked, get, got my rockets ready to fire, I, I was, I had it in my sights. It just disappeared. And then it was immediately said, oh, there was a CIA, secret CIA program, and it was a radar, fake radar return and on and on and on. But Dr. Torres said, oh, no, no, this, this was uh, not ours. And we were ordered to fire on it. More recently, a couple of years ago, there was a terrifically bizarre UFO event over the town of Stevensville, Texas, including a UFO flying low over the town, chased by a military jet, including strange symbols that appeared in the sky that appear to be in some sort of glyphic language, similar to very early Hebrew, you figure that out, and Afterwards, the Air Force Base, Carswell Air Force Base nearby was called. They said, oh, no, no, we didn't see anything. We didn't send up any jets. It's all a bunch of nonsense and hooey. Uh, It's just uh, 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 Sir Martin Reese's cranks again. But the MUFON people, Mutual UFO Network people, used the Freedom of Information Act to get the not the Air Force Base, because they couldn't because of national security, but to get the FAA's radar tracks for the area for that night. And once they got the radar tracks interpreted, lo and behold, <laughs> you, get, you see one of the UFOs that was on radar, and you see the jet coming after it and the UFO running away. So I would suggest given the fact that we shoot at them too, just like the arrow people shoot at us, (laughs) that we change the name of the human species. Let's call ourselves from now on the arrow people.
0: I like that. I think that's a good idea.
1: And believe me, they're going to be hanging back just just the way we do as long as we remain arrow people. And
0: according to Hawking, maybe that's a good thing.
1: Well, Hawking is filled with ego. You know, you don't have... He's a brilliant man. I'm not saying that. Mm -hmm. But he also is... You know, Rusty Schweiker, the astronaut, who hates this whole UFO thing as far as I know, said to me one night, uh, he said, You know, Whitley, sometimes I half believe you. And I hate that. Because I don't want the the way way to Mars to be a well-worn path. And there's a great deal... That in every scientist, and this is serious business, who who faces the possibility that his whole life of search could be in an instant trumped by a presence so powerfully informed and filled with understanding that he no longer has any real mystery to face. And this is why many of the peoples who were roughly invaded and welcomed into society by Western technologists back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s as we expanded into these isolated areas became miserable and drunken because their cultural culture, their cultures were invalidated. And that is what they fear and it is why stephen hawking finds the idea of alien contact uh, ominous and why any if there are aliens here aliens with any kind of ethical sense are going to treat us with great care and are going to be very very wary about closing the question until we can meet them on an equal footing the chimpanzee has got to at least be able to sit behind the wheel, if not drive the car.
0: We just better hope that uh, it doesn't turn out that ethics are uh, quaint and outmoded, as as uh, our old old uh, digital
1: clocks. Well, yeah, you know, one one scientist who's who who's into this and and who's who who is very comfortable with it said to me said, "Well, you know, Whitley, I'm not really concerned about the ethical issue, and the reason is that." A species that advanced is going to have to be, ethically, more advanced also, and I said, well, you're basing that idea on our own history. And he said, well, yeah, we're much more ethically advanced than the ancient Romans were. I said, we are, but we're not more ethically advanced. I mean, we're much the 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 communists under Stalin, and the the Nazis were ethically far less advanced than the ancient Romans. And they are still living, many of them, among us. So watch out. That's a dangerous assumption, I think.
0: Well, yeah. And no, ethics ethics aside, ancient Romans and modern humans are happy to step on ants.
1: (laughs) Well, that's another problem, isn't it?
0: (laughs) Now, uh, one of the things that I want to talk about as we wrap this up is... um, Your wife, Anne, provided the key to this
1: book. She did.
0: So talk about that key and uh, talk about our existence here as a larval stage.
1: Well, what happened was this. Uh, Anne kind of took this thing in hand. She was bemused, I think would be the best way to describe it, by my initial descriptions. Of a close encounter of the third kind, Anne is a very curious human being, very open minded, very brilliant uh, but she was willing to to take to suggest she was eager to suggest that I might keep my options open with this and not come to the conclusion that it was really an alien contact. And she's a master of keeping the question open. She's very, very good at that in conversation. She's really quite good. So, And you make sure it's it, important to
0: understand, to ask the right question. Question,
1: yes. And so she took the letters. We began to get thousands and thousands, bags and bags of letters. Annie took these letters in hand because she reads like she's a speed reader. She can read with, you know, she could read so fast. And she would be reading these letters And she made a chart of the things that she was seeing that were consistent across the letters. And one thing that the UFO community never mentioned and that no one had understood to that time was, she said to me, Whitley, these people are seeing aliens and seeing the dead with them at the same time. And it's a consistent finding And it's true. I did this. The first night, the communion night, there was an old friend there who had been in the Central Intelligence Agency. And my initial thought was I'd been roughed up by a bunch of intelligence guys who had some political axe to grind with me. And I'd been drugged. And I tried to get a hold of him. I tried for months. Finally, I tracked him down. He'd been dead for nearly a year when I saw him and sat with him out in the woods and talked with him in our cabin you'd have aliens come into the living room where there'd be a bunch of people sleeping or trying to sleep and then in the basement below, this happened. there were a man and woman sleeping together they were a couple, so they were having a pri- they were in a private pl- space and they woke up and saw a friend of theirs standing perfectly healthily not looking like a ghost or anything at the foot of the bed uh uh, she died in the mexico city earthquake of 1983 and she said i'm just here to tell you i'm all right all at the same time another case a, a woman who would that night would have a close encounter of the third kind with an apparent alien was walking down the road in front of the cabin that afternoon and suddenly came across her brother who was perfectly, looked totally normal. The trouble is, he disappeared 20 years before, and the FBI had declared him dead. And uh, she said, my God, where have you come from? And he said, oh, over there. I just came to tell you I'm all right. Whereupon he drifted, floated off into the woods, and disappeared.
0: (laughs) Well, this uh, gets to, I think, uh, what what happened to you, and what happened uh, to the the men in the Sulawesi uh, uh, jungle? The the similar experience. And Arthur Machen, uh, a very famous British fantasist, wrote quite a bit about this, um, a journey into the other world, into what's often known as uh, the land of the fairy, the the fae.
1: The land of the fay. the the These lands are all around us. We are we we are actually living in a very small place that is embedded in something much, much larger, that is richly endowed with consciousness, understanding, and experience far beyond what we have. Now, but that leads me to the question that is central to my whole life experience. Why is it like this? And if it's true that we are kept here in this isolated carefully designed little 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 bubble of unknowing why what larger reason is there for mankind to be like this and I don't think at this point that it's so true to say oh well uh it, it, you know it, it's a it's a we are an after effect in some, some irrelevant after effect. Somebody is doing something. We are the something. But my question is, what are they doing?
0: Well, you talked, too, about uh, uh, evolution through stressing the different sides of the brain.
1: Well, like we just talked about yeah. that a, mo- a couple of to- moments ago. Stressing the brain actually changes the brain. And this is happening all over this planet to millions of people. Everybody who's dealing, everybody who's listening to this now and isn't simply saying, oh, it's that fool uh, trying to make another million million dollars or whatever. Um, uh, Everybody who's entertaining this and, and thinking to themselves, these are real questions, is being literally changed by whoever it is that is doing this to us. Every person as soon as they open their mind to this question, immediately has a direct link to the core of the mystery.
0: And this, I think, goes to uh, some research being done in consciousness, human consciousness, where we're really at the edge of technology, and you talk about this kind of consciousness. You're a dualist, I I gather, in that you think that mind and body are separate. It's Descartes, I think it's Descartes, who thought that mind and body were, were separate beings.
1: No I I'm actually not. Oh, Okay. I but I'm I I think that that the 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 transformative potential of the physical and the profound transformative potential of physical is unrecognized mm. that we are in effect blind to our own potential in this respect. We we don't know what we are or what we could accomplish.
0: Uh, that's actually Uh, Now verifiably true. A lot of brain scientists are are really at the edge of discovering. I just spoke with Michael Gazaniga, who's doing a lot of – He's did a lot of very famous split-brain experiments with with patients where he would – where people who had had their – have their brains separated to prevent epileptic seizures. Your left eye sees – goes into your right uh, brain right. And your right eye goes into your left brain and it turns out that the right side of your brain is the fact it just it, this is the part of your the half of your this is the half of your brain that sees the re- reality mm-hmm. and then this is the half of your brain that tells the story and that there's this kind of storytelling aspect to all our lives and, and this half of the brain is happy to lie it, it just wants the best make sense story out of what's out there this thing is catching everything
1: Well, interestingly enough, you say it's happy to lie. What you're really saying is it wants to make sense of what it sees.
0: It wants a a narrative, a story. Yeah, it wants a
1: narrative. This was where my relationship with my wife was so valuable because she was not interested in the narrative nearly as much as she wanted to know where the ambiguities lay Mm -hmm. because she was not convinced that any narrative that I could come up with was going to accurately reflect the actual experiences. And she felt that the articulation of the ambiguities and the questions surrounding them was the thrust of our, the important thrust of our work, not coming up with an accurate narrative.
0: What you do come up with is a narrative that makes people think and transforms, I think, literally does transform the way you see the world. As I said, as I walked around your neighborhood, I was looking for, you know, people in windows and just looking at stuff and thinking, you know, that could be really odd. Then I came up here, and I'm still hearing the high-pitched whine
1: that nobody else hears. Yeah, Yeah, the neighborhood is perfectly normal and very prosaic except for that dinosaur yeah well, have, you, have you
0: have you had any you know all, in all the other places you've lived you've had some kind of odd experiences I uh,
1: have had in this room
0: what tell us
1: well uh I'll tell you in um 2009 I wrote a not a comic novel but a rye novel called 2012
0: I love that novel yeah, it's a fun book
1: fun novel I, I really think. had fun writing it and the idea of, of the writer who's writing a novel that is actually creating a war in another universe and they're coming after him to try to get him to change his story is really fun for me. So I had a lot of fun with it. Um, the writer in Duress is a character that I like to, like to uh, play with in my fiction. Uh, so in any case, uh, the book was published in, I, I think in August or September – And I found myself one night in December. Uh, First, I had some papers showed up suggesting that parallel universes may be three-dimensional realities, a particularly trenchant one by the great um, English mathematician David Deutsch. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking to myself, my God, maybe maybe it's actually true. And I'm the writer, and the fact that I've written the book has changed a parallel universe and they are going to come after me the potential for a practical joke proved irresistible to the visitors and they showed up here i of course and and here's what happened Uh, it was a very rainy december night a lot of wind coming in off the ocean and uh something woke me up uh movement or sounds in the room and I could see through the as I woke up I was lying on my side facing the windows which were the the blinds were partly open I could see all these lights hanging out there in the in the clouds and the clouds were just rushing past and the lights were absolutely still and there was no way you could see street lights from my position at all and I thought holy moly it might be a UFO and I had a I've had a camera or now a camera phone on my bedside for many years. I grabbed it and sat up, and then the clouds were just normal. I didn't see anything. So I thought, ah, oh, it was a waking dream. I know millions of things about the state of the mind and sleep now. by now, as you may imagine. Mm-hmm. So I lay back down, and I turned over and started to go to sleep, and there it was again. So this time I woke Ann up, and I sat up, and it was gone. And I realized it was there, but you could only see it from that angle. Mm -hmm. And so this was a real anomaly. So I grabbed the phone, the camera phone, and I couldn't quite get an image of it because there wasn't, with the blinds half closed, there was not enough room. So I rushed over to the window intending to bend down until I saw it and could take a picture of it. But by that time, it had gone almost out. It was all, it was disappeared into the clouds. It was gone, but it was not even a hundred feet above the 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 intersection just here, just down the street, and I thought, Darn! I missed it again. And but then I I went back to bed and we went to sleep, and suddenly I had what appeared to be a dream. uh that Ann had let a pack of do- dogs into the the apartment and they'd gotten under the bed, and I jumped up out of the bed think, and very confused and I rushed into the living room and everything was changed. It was a different room. I turned around to go back into the bedroom to get Anne who was just going back to sleep at that point and the hallway was different. I was in a different place, entirely different. Mm-hmm. And this went on for 15 or 20 minutes and during that time... I went to seven different lives in which I was a a participant in all seven of these lives. Uh, And it was as if the concept that we live in a kind of a foam and each universe, each reality is a bubble in the foam reflecting only itself. And somehow on that night, the bubbles had popped and I was ending up living consciously Mm -hmm. in a whole bunch of different realities. And I decided later that this was such a complex experience, most of it unfolding while I was awake, that it was at least possible that it was a close encounter, that some other presence had come in order to give me a hard time Over parallel universes in the book.
0: (laughs) I've been speaking with Whitley Strieber. His new book is Solving the Communion Enigma. Thank you for joining me, Whitley.
1: Thank you for having me.